You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. If you can open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 7, um, today we're going to try and shoot through Nehemiah and sort of get hold of the second uh, half of it, really. In our study last week, we sort of touched base just on a few different things, trying to bring out some ideas from the, the first half of it. Um, and here in this second half, you remember that in chapter 6 and verse 15, the walls have been finished. Um so those who temporarily come to stay in Jerusalem left. And it's clear that not many people actually live in Jerusalem itself. So you come in chapter seven in verse four, it says, now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein and the houses were not builded. So the city had plenty of space, but not many people were living in it. Uh, they'd rather live in the country where they could farm than in the city surrounded by some rubble still, I expect. So Nehemiah gathers the people together to, um, first of all, work out their genealogies. And he's linking back to those who first came under Zerubbabel and Jeshua. So we read in verse five, my God put into my heart to gather together the nobles, the rulers and the people that they might be reckoned by genealogy. So eventually we're going to try to sort of get hold of how they deal with the fact there's not many people in Jerusalem. But first of all, it seems a bit confusing, but just follow this. So the first thing that he does is bring people together to reckon them by genealogy. And it says in the end of verse five, I found a register of the genealogy of them came up at the first uh, and found written therein. These are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those that had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and come again to Jerusalem and to Judah, everyone unto his city, who came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, it must be different, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Misbreth, Bigvi, Nahum and Bayana. Uh, the number I say of the men of the people of Israel was this and goes then into the, the numbering of them. So Nehemiah does this by going over this list that was made at this time. So chapter seven of Nehemiah links incredibly closely with Ezra chapter two. And your margin, no doubt, would tell that if you just look in your margin, you'll see how this is connecting to Ezra too. Now, it's considered that the register in Ezra was done in Babylon before they left. And then the one in Nehemiah when they actually got to Jerusalem. So it's almost like the vessels that were counted out and then counted in. Uh, and this possibly accounts for the couple of changes that we, you see if you kind of really study the detail of the two lists. But certainly the point here is that for Nehemiah, it was important that those dwelling in Jerusalem had their roots in the return. So he's trying to sort out getting people to live in Jerusalem. And the first thing he does is work out who came back, which families came back with Zerubbabel and Jeshua, which would have been some 95 years earlier. So he wants to know the people who would have a sort of genuine desire to defend it and uphold what it should stand for. And so it's actually in chapter 11 that you then see how they deal with this problem of these sort of few families that are living in Jerusalem. But first of all, we want to think, well, OK, we understand that's in chapter 11. Why, though, are we given chapters 8, 9 and 10 in between chapter 7 and chapter 11, where in chapter 11 they do deal with the issue of those living in Jerusalem? So, so what is this in between bit and why would it be put here? Well, these chapters, chapters 8, 9 and 10, show to us the spiritual tone that Nehemiah and Ezra were setting. In Nehemiah 8, the word is opened up. In chapter 9, they pray to God. In fact, it's the longest recorded prayer outside the Psalms. And in chapter 10, they set out clearly how it is that this will affect them in practical terms, their, their study from the word and their prayer. So let's come in at the final verse of chapter seven, where we read um, halfway through the verse. And when the seventh month came, 
the children of Israel were in their cities and all the people gathered themselves together as one, uh, as one man, sorry, into the street that was before the water gate. Now, I think we want to just uh, see if we can um, make this very clear connection now. So will you just come back with me? Hold Nehemiah chapter eight, as we just now got into and come back to Ezra chapter three and the end of Ezra chapter two. We're going to see a very, very clear connection here. So remember, we've already said, haven't we, that Nehemiah chapter seven is the, the list of names equates with the list in Ezra chapter two. And I want you to notice how Ezra chapter two ends. It says in verse 70 of Ezra two. So the priests and the Levites and some of the people and the singers and the porters and the Nethanim dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. And when the seventh month was come, chapter three, verse one, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and they get on and build the, the altar in this case. So just look carefully, the end of chapter two, verse 70, priests and Levites, okay, they go and dwell in the cities, and when the seventh month was come, the children of Israel were in their cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Go back to chapter Nehemiah, chapter seven, says in verse 73, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, some of the people, the Nephilim and all of Israel dwelt in their cities. That's 270, isn't it? Okay. And when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. That's where we are. Uh, Ezra chapter three, verse one, that's the same thing. And all the people, chapter eight, verse one, gather themselves together as one man. And what you see then in Ezra chapter three, verse one, it's all the people gather themselves together as one man. So why? Why? Surely the reason is that they're building on the same foundation. And Nehemiah has purposely gone over that same register, which tells them which families are rooted in this work. And now he manages what they're doing to evoke the spirit of Zerubbabel, the first to Chatha, that the governor and the spirit of Jeshua. On that day, 90 plus years before, we read in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 2, Jeshua, the high priest, stood up with the other priests and Zerubbabel too. And they built the altar and they keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, so very clearly that's what they do. Chapter uh, 3 and verse 4, they kept also the Feast of Tabernacles. And I want you to see that specifically, we realize from Ezra chapter 3 and um, once in verse 2, and once in verse three, as it is written in the law of Moses, okay, that or as it is written in verse four, sorry. That, so they're saying they're, they're getting back to what the word wanted. That's what they did in Ezra, in Ezra sorry, not in Ezra's time, in Zerubbabel and Jeshua's time, as it's recorded in Ezra chapter three. And here is Nehemiah in Ezra chapter eight with Ezra, the, the person, and they're getting back to those same foundations. Just as Jeshua had stood up, see at this, Ezra chapter one, all the people gather themselves together as one man, just like it was then. Um, and they spoke unto Ezra, the scribe. Then what did you see? Uh, Ezra in verse four, the scribe stood. Ezra stands up just as Jeshua had done. Um, as Jeshua was flanked with others, so too is Ezra. You see that um, in verse four of Nehemiah chapter eight. So here then in Nehemiah chapter eight, let's just recap this point that we're making. Nehemiah is getting them back to their foundations, as it were. Uh, he's saying, right, who was amongst the families that first came? Okay, who's got their roots here? We want to find that out. And once he's understood that, then he carefully orchestrates the situation so that all the people come back together as one, just as it had said there in Ezra chapter three, as they had done. Okay, Ezra is uh, there as the priest, as Jeshua was the priest, Nehemiah the Teshatha, as Zerubbabel was the Teshatha, the governor, that's all that is. Okay, so it's just wonderful to see how men 
of God time and again get to the scriptures and they base their lives on it and they think carefully how do we orchestrate the situation so that people can be spiritually helped by this let's see what happens in another place in scripture that's what he's done and so now Ezra the old wise scribe opens up the scriptures to the people it would have been a great day ensuring that they understand in fact the Hebrew word bene meaning to understand comes up eight times in Nehemiah and six of them are in this chapter. So if, if you like kind of colouring things, if you like things kind of standing out in your Bible, recognising these key things, then this is an easy one to do, isn't it? So in chapter eight and verse two, it says Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding. Um, I see it again in verse three, those that could understand. Uh, I see it again in verse seven cause the people to understand the law, uh, halfway through verse eight, and cause them to understand the reading. It's actually the word translated taught in verse nine, uh, Ezra the priest, the scribe and the Levites that taught the people, that taught them to understand, I suppose. Um, it's the word in verse 12, uh, they had understand the words. Um, and then I see another word um, in verse 13, it's a slightly different word that we're gonna come on to there. So. Yeah, certainly six times we see this idea, Benny, this to understand. And there are some other interesting words that we can pick out of verse eight. So on this great day is they're causing the people to understand the word of God. They're getting them back to their roots. It says in verse eight, so they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. The word distinctly is only used five times in the whole bible it's translated uh, once as shared uh, or declared so clearly that makes sense doesn't it, it, it so just in terms of they read it distinctly that they shared it they declared it but it's also translated as scatter and again when we think of the idea the word needs to be spread like, you know, the power of the soul or something, that there's this need for the word to be scattered. So it comes out distinctly. But th there's another uh, translation of it. So remember, this word is only used five times. We've picked up sort of five translations of the word. Uh, but another time it's translated as sting is in an adder's sting. And I suppose we might learn from that that when the word of God is expounded properly, there are times when it's going to prick the conscience. It's, it's going to sting a bit. So it's interesting to just like follow a word like that and just think, well, what can we learn from that? That they're translated that, that's translated. How do I understand this word? You know, and from this would say that this idea of distinctly, we, we get the idea, yes, it's about just sharing the word. It's about kind of scattering it, making sure, you know, all that are there are picking this up. Um, but also this idea of a sting that actually it might uh, be there to prick our conscience. And that would certainly explain, wouldn't it, why having heard the word, at the end of verse nine, it says, all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. It bothered their conscience. They realized where they were. I'd also like to pick out the word sense in verse eight. So they gave the sense. Uh, it's also interesting, it's a noun, you know, having the sense. It's not simply about the understanding. It's about now the wisdom. You know, that, that, that's what this idea is. Um, it's the Hebrew sakal. Um, and actually, it's the, the, um, the verb form of it is the word understand you see in verse 13. So as they shared the word, they were giving wisdom, the sense to those who understood and, and listened. So, so wisdom isn't simply about understanding. It. So it's not just a repetition of that. The idea of giving the sense, the idea of giving the wisdom is it means something practical. And we see that outworking in verse 10, where we read, then he said unto them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet and send portions unto him for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord, neither be sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What a different attitude there. Um, that, that to, to, to the attitude we saw in chapter five, that now they're looking to uh, make sure that they're giving portions to those for those who, who nothing's prepared. So where in chapter five, you might remember, we saw that the needy were being taken advantage of. Here, they're clearly being looked after. So 
this word now, let's just pick it out again in verse 13, which I, I mentioned is uh, this idea of uh, sakal again in the Hebrew or salkal, I'm not quite sure how you'd say it, but um, we say this is the verb form of that word, the noun in the sense in verse eight. And this word understand, again, we're saying it's to do with wisdom. So how can we prove that? Well, let me give you a cross-reference. And uh, so anyone I'm going to turn to here, I'm going to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18 and see this word used in the life of David. So 1 Samuel 18 and verse 5 says, David went out and whithersoever Saul sent him, behaved himself wisely. That, that's the word. Uh, you see it in verse 14 of the same chapter. So 1 Samuel 18, verse 14, David behaved himself wisely in all his ways and the Lord was with him. Verse 15, wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely. So you see, it's the behaving wisely uh, that's coming out. Um, you see it again in uh, verse 30 of this chapter as well. So knowledge of the law is one thing. Uh, understanding is another step forward. But to have the wisdom to put that into action is the real test. And it seems that they were able to give them the sense, the wisdom through their exposition of the word to kind of really galvanize them into action. And having seen the, the fact that they immediately responded by trying to look after those that didn't have, um, uh, how did it put it in chapter Nehemiah 8 and verse uh, 10 those that didn't have anything prepared so they look to try to help them and then we see in a lovely way the way in which they then want to observe the feast of tabernacles properly so it says in verse 14 that they found written in the law which the lord had commanded by moses that the children of israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, go forth unto the mountain, fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches, thick trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, everyone upon the roof of his house and in their court and in the courts of the house of God and in the street of the water gate, in the street of the gate of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them that were come about, come again out of the captivity, made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, unto that day, had not the children of Israel done, uh, done so. And there was very great gladness. And day by day, from the first day unto the last day, he read in the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day was a solemn assembly, according unto the manner. So what a, a great thing that they were able to do then in enjoying that time together. Um, seven days. Uh, can you imagine the sort of families, what you know, children would just love that, wouldn't they, to be um, involved in the making of these booths um, and then recognising this was about the, the Feast of Tabernacles, looking forward to the kingdom to come. Of course, we, like any good Bible school, you, you see what they do. You know, verse 18, day by day, from the first day unto the last day, he read in the book of the law of God. Now, that's just crucial, isn't it? That, that you now our coming together as families, as ecclesias, that every time we come together, the word of God should be brought out as the absolute norm. That is the basis of our relationships. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God is what the apostle wrote, isn't it? So such an example for us, and it's a really helpful example on how to study, to get grips with our basic knowledge of scripture, to continually work on our understanding of the word, and then to be thinking about the practical lessons of putting it into practice. And this is magnified even more when you sort of see lovely ideas then when you start kind of looking at this you get the idea of the story then you start trying to understand what's going on and then you notice things like this that that in verse seven you've got jeshua who we realize that his name is the hebrew name for the lord jesus you've got jeshua there in verse seven and 12 others surrounding him and what, what a lovely picture that is then and the, and the impact of this feast that they have um, is still going on when we come into chapter nine. So read now in chapter nine in verse one, that in the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloth and earth upon them. 
And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And again, this is a powerful lesson. We know they understood the word. So that came out in chapter eight. What they understood was that they needed to be separate from the world. And so they acted on that. And then we see in verse four, that eight Levites stand up in front of everyone and lead them in prayer. So let's see this in verse six. Thou, even thou art Lord alone, Yahweh alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all things that are therein, the sea and all that is therein. And thou preserveth them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Thou art Yahweh the God, who didst bring, choose Abraham and brought him forth out of Ur of the Coldies, and gave it him the name of Abraham. And, you know, the, the prayer you know, goes on, you know, and I'm not going to, to read it now, but right through to towards the end of this chapter. And as is often the case in certainly long prayers that we see in Scripture, they recount the Scriptures. They're recognising their roots. Yahweh's they are. And it's Yahweh they serve. So they're going back to their roots, aren't they? Thinking about Abraham being called and then recounting through. If you read through this prayer, you'd see how there, there are links to all parts of Scripture, from Genesis to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, the Kings, the Chronicles, the Psalms, the Prophets. I, I promise you, I'm not making it up. You, know, you, you go through just your margin alone, you'd be able to see that. They're just bringing out um, the, the thinking back through the scriptures. And so this time of opening and understanding the word, of praying in a way which went over God's word, brings the people to a point of clarity where they really recognize their position. And so you see at the end of chapter nine in verse 33, they say in this prayer, how be it thou art just in all that is brought upon us. For we have done right, but for sorry, for thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. I've got to put, put my glass on here. Neither have our kings, our princes, our priests, nor our fathers kept thy law, nor hearkened unto thy commandments and thy testimonies, wherein thou didst testify against them. For they have not served thee in their kingdom, and in thy great goodness that thou gavest them, and in the large and fat land which thou gavest before them, neither turned they. From their wicked works so that they they understand then that they really were in a, a bad place and that actually that god was just in what had happened to them but their recognition was needed for them to then rededicate their lives and so this time of getting back to the roots of opening up the word of god of praying to god brought them then to this point where they wanted to rededicate their lives. And so we read in chapter 30, uh, chapter 9 in verse 38, because of all this, we make a sure covenant. So because of all the things we've done, like Nehemiah's got us back to our roots, chapter uh, 7. We've opened up the word, chapter 8. We've prayed, chapter 9. Because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites and priests, seal unto it. Now those that sealed were Nehemiah, the Teshatha, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah, and then it goes on to list um, 84 individuals, 84 that literally sign up to the covenant as representatives for the nation. And actually what we realise is that all who had knowledge and understanding, in other words, all who were responsible were included through these representatives. So, you know, 84, if you like mass, then seven times 12, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, to think of that in terms of that number. But I want to just bring in now to, to verse 28. And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nethanims, and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding, they clave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and to do all the commandments of Yahweh our Lord and his judgments and 
his statutes. So the chapter then goes on now in chapter 10 to detail what practically signing up to this covenant would mean. So they make this sure covenant. They say, right, good, let's sign up to it. 84 of them sign up to it and, and the others are being signed up to it as right, through these representatives. And now what does that mean? What is this covenant they signed up to? Well, from verse 30 in chapter 10 onwards, they're, they're seeing they're, they're listing almost the details of this covenant. And fundamentally, what it means is that what they've read and understood from the scriptures has shown them that they need to make some changes to align their lives with God's will. Now, it kind of struck me in a way going through this study that if we're going to genuinely sort of read these things in a way that um, is useful, would it be a, not a bad thing to do as an ecclesia, as a family, as an individual, to take some time to, having read through God's word, and pray about these things, genuinely try to almost list, put down some practical things that we're going to try to make some changes with in our lives, and see if you can hold on to them. Because we're going to unfortunately see that that doesn't happen here. Let, let's stick with the positive for a while. But what, what a good practical thing to try to do. See if we can put down some ideas and have a go at sticking to them. How long would we last? Yeah, we'll see how long these guys last. It seems to me, then if we just go in at verse 30, we take a, a note of these changes. That the, the first one is to say that our family lives must be about God and not the world. So, so I think that's what, how we'd sum up verse 30, that we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. So our family lives have got to be about God and not the world. The second one in verse 31, the Sabbath, is actually a lot to do with their work lives, to do with selling and buying. So in other words, their work lives need to be overruled by God. And then the third one, um, the, the idea of the they would actually make sure that the, the land had its rest every seventh year and that at that time they would release every debt. So people that would owe them. So th there again, you've got some idea of work life and, and sort of relationships with others that they would be willing to, you know, for, uh, let any debts go. So our family lives then, our work lives and our relationships with others need to be aligned with God. I think we can see that in those first three. The others then, then coming through the chapter, are all to do with giving to the house of God. And that, that's the recurring phrase. So again, if you like a bit of colouring, verse 32, verse 33, verse 34, verse 36, twice, verse 37, uh, verse 38, uh, verse uh, 39 the house of god the house of god so these these next ones are all to do with what they can give to the house of god and what i think you learn from this is that by giving to the house of god they're investing in this that they're, they're, they're recognizing they've got to be buy into this as it were it's a spiritual investment if the temple is running properly then the teaching from the word will happen properly, which will in turn support every aspect of their lives, their family life, their work life, their relationship with others. So I'm going to share my screen now. So, so that first of all, they're not marrying outside the truth. So we're saying that to do with the family life. But the honouring the Sabbath, we're saying that's to do with their work life. Um, and then the leaving the seventh year of rela release with their kind of general relationships with others too. And then we said the rest are to do with um, giving to the, the temple. So you see how it sort of concludes at the end of chapter 10. We will not forsake the house of our God. So I think that's a really helpful, again, lesson for us to try to, to learn from this, that giving time and energy and resources to the ecclesia is an investment in our own spiritual welfare. That it works both ways, that actually in them as 
Israelites investing in the house of God, then what they would do is get reciprocate from that learning about God, good learning about God, people expounding the Bible as they, they had in chapter eight, which then actually in a really good way affects their relationship. So what a great time they had making those tents and, and doing those things together and the word of God being open on a daily basis. So so therefore they, they learn to actually the children grow up in relationships where they actually want to marry other people within the meeting. They learn to get on with one another and actually, um, yeah, their, their work dealings are, are going to be more along scriptural lines. They should be. Uh, and then their relationships with one another where they're willing to forgive one another. Well, when you know people, well, it's so much easier to do that, isn't it? You know, blood is thick in the water, they say, don't they? That's what we should be trying to do. Create those strong relationships. So investing in the ecclesia is an investment in our own spiritual welfare. I think we can take that lesson from here. So as we come then into chapter 11, we're coming now back, aren't we, to the issue that was highlighted in chapter 7, where there wasn't enough people living in Jerusalem. So having now gone back to their roots, opened up the word, prayed about the situation, made a faithful promise to do something, now they can deal with the issue. So we see in chapter 11, verse 1, the prince of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. So remember that the issue, chapter 7, verse 4, there wasn't enough people in Jerusalem. This is now what they are doing. They're casting lots to bring one in ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city. Then we see in verse two, the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. So what a great um, spirit there was now for people willingly offering themselves to go to live there before they had wanted to. When the word of God's been expounded, once the, their, their prayer life was in a good place, once they're kind of making these promises together. Now people are willingly offering themselves to come to live in Jerusalem. There's lots of sort of little details that we could bring out of chapter 11, but we want to rapidly move on to chapter 12 and the dedication of the walls of Jerusalem. And we suggest that this is a little later than the events of chapter 8 to 10 when you're coming in in chapter 12 and verse 27. Uh, the reason I think it's probably a little bit later is simply because the people need to be brought back again to the city. So it suggests that the people have gone home after those events. Um, and people are now living in Jerusalem as they set up in chapter 11. And now at the dedication of the walls of Jerusalem, it says in verse 27 of chapter 12, they sought the Levites out of all their places to bring them again to Jerusalem. So there's this regathering and coming back in. So let's read what it is they're doing. So they, they bring them back to Jerusalem to keep the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving, with singing, with uh, cymbals, psalteries and with harps. And the son, sons of the singers gathered themselves together, both out of the plain country round about Jerusalem and from the villages of the Tophathai, and from the house of Gilgal and out of the house of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had builded them villages round about Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people and the gates and the wall. So by, by the priests purifying the people, the gates and the wall, it's this public visualisation, isn't it? It's this, this demonstration that this place was going to be holy to God. And now in this dedication, this kind of consecration, that's what they're doing here. They're consecrating the city of Jerusalem, saying this place matters. This is a place which is going to be holy to God. In, in this lovely way now, Nehemiah organises two companies. We're reading verse 31. I brought up the prince of Judah upon the wall, appointed two great companies that gave thanks, whereof one went on the right hand upon the wall toward the dung gate. And then it lists the, uh, those who are there. And we know from verse 36 that Ezra the scribe was before them. So we've got Ezra leading one company. And then we've got another company, which would suggest that Nehemiah is a part of. Uh, he's certainly following in verse 38. I after them that are going another way. So let me try to show you um, a diagram of the walls of Jerusalem. So they get set up. Uh, we've got those who are at the Dungate. So verse 31, the Dungate's right down there in the south. 
And then you've got the, the other in verse 37 at the fountain gate. That's down at the south. So you can imagine these two uh, great companies, you know, going up the walls. Uh, I, I tell you, it's terrible to be telling this kind of feeling so pleased myself that I, I went to Jerusalem um, only six weeks or so ago and was walking up on the walls of Jerusalem. Um, it's just thrilling, just super exciting. Now, sadly, it wasn't these walls. Um, they, these these were walls that had kind of been um, built many years after this. But you can still see some of the walls of Jerusalem and certainly got to kind of stand around down here. And I think I told you uh, last week that watched an amazing visualization of the uh, the time of Nehemiah on some of these old walls. So that's pretty thrilling to see that. But here I wanted to appreciate this kind of wonderful uh, PowerPoint and how it is that they uh, start their walk to these two companies and head up and then stop at the prison gate. It says there in verse 39. So they stood still in the prison gate. And uh, so there stood the two companies of them that gave thanks in the house of God. And I and the half of the rulers with me and the priests Eliakim, Asiah, Minimim, Micaiah, list through the, the, the priests. And then it says at the end of verse 42, and the singers sang loud with Jezrahiah, their overseer. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced. So the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. So what? Just kind of a thrilling thing to have been there. And imagine the excitement of those two great companies singing praises to God. And it's a wonderful type of the kingdom that we're seeing here. It's got echoes of Isaiah 52 all over it. But it's worth joining here. Come, come with me. So leave a marker here and come with me to Isaiah chapter 52. We'll see some, some fab uh, ideas coming out of this chapter. So when you come to chapter 52, just, you know, read the opening verse and realise this is about the resurrection of Jerusalem. So it's unsurprising, isn't it, that we're going to see many connections of thought into Nehemiah. So there on the screen, I've given you some uh, connections of thought uh, running from Isaiah 52 into Nehemiah. So let's just try to kind of think through a couple of these Nehemiah's done everything he can, hasn't he, to make Jerusalem a holy city. You know, so that's good, isn't it? Straight away. Oh, Jerusalem, the holy city. And I've given you a cross reference there. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1, verse 18, it refers to it as the holy city. And of course, the whole idea in chapter 12 is they're looking to dedicate, to consecrate, to purify, to, to make it holy, this city. Nehemiah's done that and he's unsure, made sure, hasn't he, that that's not simply about them saying, oh, you know, let's sort of, you know, make it ceremonially clean. He, he didn't want the unclean living there. And that's why he got back to saying who's got their roots going back to the time of Ezra and uh, to, to Zerubbabel and Jeshua, because that matters. We don't want this place to be an unholy place. So he wanted to get back to their roots, didn't he, to make that a reality. The, the rebuilding, of course, in the end, wasn't about the walls. It's about a place of holiness full of people who want to serve Yahweh. Look at verse 9 of Isaiah 52. It says, break forth into joy, sing together. Well, what have we just seen? You waste places of Jerusalem, for Yahweh hath comforted his people. He, th he hath redeemed Jerusalem. So it's talking about the waste place of Jerusalem being comforted. And um, yeah, I've given you there on the screen uh, Nehemiah 2 and verse 3 when Nehemiah was before the king, do you remember, before he's left? And he says, look, the, the place of my father's sepulchres lies waste. Jerusalem is a waste place. Um, but now he's managed to, through his work, turn it into a place of joy and singing. And we also note in there, when it says Yahweh comforted his people, well, Nehemiah's name means the comfort of Yah. So lovely, isn't it? He's the one that God used to bring the good news to Jerusalem. When I look at verse 8 of Isaiah 52, I find this thrilling, really, to think about the watchman 
who become singers. So it says, thy watchmen shall lift up their voice with the voice together shall they sing. And the reason I find that thrilling is when I think about what happened in Nehemiah. In fact, just, you know, hold Isaiah 52. Look at Nehemiah chapter 12. And it talks about perhaps some of those men who are involved in the singing as the priests. But I can list five of those men or certainly at least no two, three, no five of them. Hananiah. Measiah, Shemaiah, Malchijah, and Ezer. So I'm reading from verse 41 and 42 of Nehemiah 12. Those five that I just listed, they come up um, in Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, why am I interested in that? Well, Nehemiah 3 is a list of the builders. So the builders in Nehemiah 3, we know were building. They then, in chapter 4, had to set a watch. Do you remember? They set a watch and they had their swords, okay? So they became watchmen. The builders became watchmen. Nehemiah 3, the builders became watchmen in Nehemiah 4, watching while they were building. And we know that some of them had trumpets in in case they were attacked too. And now it's lovely that those same people, certainly five of them, are part of these companies now walking around Jerusalem meeting eye to eye while singing out loud that's what we saw so remember that diagram they came around the cities and then they come to meet eye to eye and they're singing and here we see in isaiah 52 verse 8 thy watchmen that you know the builders the watchmen are going to lift up their voice with the voice together shall they sing for they shall see eye to eye when Yahweh shall bring again Zion. They're going to see eye to eye. Well, literally, we saw that happen. They came around and they looked eye to eye as they're singing. It's amazing. It's just thrilling to see. So now back in chapter 12 of Nehemiah, there are other connections. And, you know, if you want that PowerPoint, no problem at all. I can get that to you. But come back to Nehemiah chapter 12 and just like well, let's just make sure again we see what a lovely joyful time this was you know in verse 43 they rejoice with great joy you know couldn't get much more joyful than that can you if you rejoice with great joy uh the wives also the children rejoice so the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off and it, it's just you know anyone who's been to a family bible school and seen you know young children just you know thrilled to be there to get the idea of how great this would have been you know great joy to have been there and it reminds us of the time when they managed to lay the foundations for the temple so just as Nehemiah had tried to set up hadn't he clearly tried to get them thinking back to Ezra chapter 2 and uh, gone through that genealogy with them in Ezra chapter 3 they then come together in the seventh month as one man and they had uh, then got together to lay the foundation and when they laid that foundation, um, I wanted to see what happens in it, the end of Ezra chapter three. So just come with me to the end of Ezra chapter three. So the two passages you want right now are Nehemiah 12 and Ezra chapter three. So having laid the foundation, it says then in verse 13, at the end of verse 13, uh, the people could not discern uh, between the, the sound of the joy from the people, uh, from the weeping of the people. But the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off. Now, what I just think so fascinating here is that, you know, we know in Nehemiah chapter eight, the end of chapter seven, beginning of chapter eight, we've seen this already this evening that Nehemiah has done his utmost to orchestrate things so they're like what happened then. It must have been thrilling for Nehemiah then to then be able to say this is what happened. And what happened, the end of verse 43, Nehemiah chapter 12, the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. No weeping this time, just the joy that's being heard afar off. And he must have put tingles down his spine to kind of think to himself that he'd done his utmost to get them to that place. And now the joy of Jerusalem could be heard afar off. What he'd aimed to do in getting them back to those those good times had worked. Well, note what Nehemiah does next now, because this is going to help us to start to look at Malachi. So Nehemiah chapter 12, the only passage you need right now, and verse 44, 
At that time, there were some appointed over the chambers for the treasures, for the offerings, for the first fruits, for the tithes, to gather into them out of the fields of the cities the portions of the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced for the priests and for the Levites that waited. And both the singers and the porters kept the ward of their God and the ward of the purification, according to the commandment of David and of Solomon, his son. So things couldn't look much better than they were in chapter 12. But we've already mentioned and we've got to deal with the fact that this goes wrong. The excitement is burst. And what we see happen very quickly is things going very wrong. The things that Nehemiah sets up stop happening. The house of God falls away from the priorities. Their commitments to change don't last. The covenant they made is broken. And a key reason that we believe that this happens is that Nehemiah's 12 years had come to an end. Do you remember how we saw in chapter five that he'd had 12 years and so his 12 years came to an end. That's what he'd set the king. If you remember in chapter two, he set the king a time. And he goes back to Artaxerxes. And we know that from chapter 13, if you just briefly look there, chapter 13 and verse six says, in all this time was not I at Jerusalem, for in the two and 30th year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king. And after certain days obtained I leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem. So we know that Nehemiah had to go back to Artaxerxes, but then he obtained leave to come again to Jerusalem. So we'll come on to Nehemiah coming back to Jerusalem in our next study. But certainly we would suggest that Malachi prophesies while Nehemiah is away. In fact, I feel that you could pretty confidently, and I'll try to prove this to you, Mark up your Bible to say that he's prophesying between Nehemiah 12 and Nehemiah 13. So this whole series has been to do with the prophets after the exile. We put some time into Haggai. Uh, we, Pete put some time into to, to Zechariah and now to Malachi. And this, we believe, is where Malachi fits in. And the reason that we have such confidence to say this is where Malachi is prophesying is because Malachi's prophecy is about the very issues that Nehemiah has been dealing with. So, so let's pick out some just easy examples from this passage. So I'm going to put this just on the screen. This is just a couple of easy ones to get us going. So we just read, didn't we, verse 44 and 45 of Nehemiah chapter 12. And you can see the connection. So these are the same Hebrew words that I've highlighted in bold into Malachi chapter three. So Malachi says, will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You've stopped bringing the tithes and the offerings, the things that Nehemiah had set up. So Malachi then goes on in chapter three to say, so this is God obviously speaking to Malachi, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house, the temple. And prove me now herewith, God says. And the word storehouse is the same Hebrew word as chambers in chapter 12, Nehemiah verse 44. We then see that Nehemiah uh, got the singers and porters to keep the ward of their God. That word, keep the ward, those two words, keep and ward, we see then in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 14, you said it's vain to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, kept the ward? That's what that's saying there. So hopefully you can see then that what Nehemiah sets up before he leaves to go back to Artaxerxes quickly goes wrong when he goes away and God sends Malachi who confronts them but they've become numb to the problem T turn to Malachi we'll come back to Nehemiah come to Malachi so final book of the Old Testament in terms of the history Nehemiah then would be the, the final book of the Old Testament so we're going into Malachi and I want you to see how 
that Malachi is having to deal with people who are just full of apathy. It's almost like they've no idea they're so far distance from God. When Malachi tells them what God says, they, they can't even see the problem. Uh, the way that I've tried to mark this up in my Bible is I've underlined these questions that they do. That These are people who are questioning Malachi, questioning God, essentially. So just if you underline these, and it's just a really easy way to kind of see these going through Malachi. So, so let's just try and pick them up. Um, we see in chapter one and verse two, uh, I have loved you, saith Yahweh, yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Okay, so immediately they just come back, don't they? Um, in chapter six and verse seven, uh, at the end of verse six, so priests have despised my name, yet ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Verse seven, you offer polluted bread upon my altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? So just time and again, they just keep coming back to God. Um, so I'm not going to try to sort of uh, go through and uh, put on my question voice for uh, every single one of those questions going through Malachi. But hopefully it becomes really clear to you. And again, it's something that uh, you can just enjoy going through uh, and marking up and, and seeing how clearly they're just questioning God all the time. So it certainly gives us a sense, doesn't it, of their terrible attitude. But let's just give a bit more thought to some of those more specific problems that Nehemiah tried to address. And we recognise that clearly things went wrong and Malachi had to address them again. So I'm going to come on from this slide. So apologies um, if you uh, haven't kind of got those down, but they're dead easy to just go through. Just look up the word we're in and you'll see most of them anyway. So let's pick out these ideas now. I enjoy putting these cross references in. So Nehemiah was upset by their lack of respect, by that they didn't fear God. So I'm going to have Nehemiah here and I'm going to have Malachi. So I don't mind reading them at the Nehemiah bits and you can put these references in your margin. So Nehemiah chapter five and verse nine says this. Nehemiah says, it is not good that you do as you are. Are you not to walk? Ought you not? to walk in the fear of our God, okay? So where can we see the fear of our God coming through? Well, it, it's kind of, you know, something we're going to be able to see it super clearly in Malachi. So I'm, first of all, I'm just going to get these down in, from Nehemiah. Um, you can trust me that uh, the references, and then I'll show you the Malachi. We're, we're running out of time, aren't we? So the looking after the poor, well, I'm sure that you can remember that Nehemiah was furious by the fact they weren't looking after the poor. In fact, they were taking advantage of them. And, and that was picked up in the covenant they made, that they wouldn't do that anymore. We know that Nehemiah, like Ezra, had done his utmost to deal with those marrying outside. In fact, you know, what was really frustrating for Nehemiah, that the reference I've given there to Nehemiah chapter six and verse 18 is when Tobiah, who's like the ultimate baddie, he, he's even marrying into the ecclesia. So this is another point that's brought up in the covenant in chapter 10 and verse 30. We know that Nehemiah had ensured that they brought the temple tax. We see that in chapter 10, didn't we? That the, the first fruits, the tithes. Why? To make sure that the priests and the Levites were being looked after because clearly they hadn't been looked after. And so that was something that came out in that covenant chapter in chapter 10. And, and of course, at the same time, Nehemiah had tried to ensure that the priests and the Levites were doing their job in leading the teaching, the praise, the worship of God. So, for example, uh, in chapter seven, verse one, it came to pass when the wall was built, I'd set up the doors, the porters, the singers and the Levites were appointed. You know, he, this is Nehemiah's organising the priests and the Levites to make sure that they're doing their job. And again, you see that coming through chapter 10. But despite Nehemiah's best efforts, the problems get worse when Nehemiah goes. And God sends Malachi then to challenge them. And it's fair to say that very few respond. So now let's, you know, you can just enjoy being in Malachi now and putting these cross-references in. So we see in chapter one and verse six, OK, 
can link back to Nehemiah 5 and verse 9. And I'm just giving you one reference to Nehemiah. I, I think that you could very easily go through chapter 10 and see nearly all of these things. The fact they weren't looking after the poor, uh, we saw that in uh, Nehemiah chapter 5, but just have a look now in Malachi chapter 3. God says, I will come near to you to judgment. Malachi 3 verse 5. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow, the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith Yahweh. So, you know, you say, look, I'm, I'm not happy with the fact that you're not looking after the poor. The idea of them marrying outside, we saw that in chapter 6 and verse 18, that's the Tobiah one. Well, look at this in Malachi chapter 2. And verse 11, Malachi 2, verse 11, Judah hath dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of Yahweh, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. And it could read through uh, right down to verse 16 and get that idea. Nehemiah was upset by the fact that the people weren't looking after the priests they weren't coming and, and giving what they should be giving to the temple. Well, look how this is summed up in Malachi chapter one and Malachi one and verse eight. God says, if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? If you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto the governor. Will he be pleased with you or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? So that idea, you know, you can keep running through down to uh, verse 12 there. They're not giving their best. And they're certainly not bringing the tithes anymore. Turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. We, we've touched on this one. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. You say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even the whole nation. Bring ye the tithes into the storehouses, that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I want to open unto you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, there shall not be room enough to receive it. Don't you realize if you invest in the ecclesia, I you will be the beneficiaries. God will pour out blessings from the windows of heaven. May we never forget that lesson to invest in. The ecclesia, what a good thing it is to do that. And finally, the priests and the Levites, they weren't doing their job. Nehemiah had done his utmost to organize them, but unfortunately, it goes so wrong. So you see in chapter two of Malachi, Malachi chapter two, verse one, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. If you are not late, if you're not here, if you're not laid to heart, to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, old, curse your blessings. Yeah, I've cursed them already because you did not lay it to heart. Um, the end of verse nine or verse eight, you departed out of the way, you've caused many to stumble at the law, you've corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. They have not kept the ways so i hope that in me shooting through that it's really clear that malachi is addressing the issues that nehemiah had tried to address but had gone so wrong after he had left and so now malachi is coming and saying why are you not doing these things one final thing that uh, we'll just bring out in this study now Malachi prophesies, just look at this one, your Bible is open, in verse 16 and 17. They that feared Yahweh spake often one to another. So what a contrast. There are some goodies there. The ones who fear, they spake often one to another. And Yahweh hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared Yahweh and that thought upon his name. They shall be mine, saith Yahweh first in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serveth him. Well, if there was any doubt in your mind that this was written at this time, Nehemiah prayed this, Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. Remember me, a book of remembrance. Remember me, 
O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. So next week, we will try to delve just a little bit more into Malachi's message and see what else other great lessons we can draw out. Let, let's finish now. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org if you enjoyed the episode then please share it with others until next time may god bless you in your studies and your walk towards god's kingdom amen